Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontieres, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. Uh, I was having that dream again. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. Hi, I'm Brian, still and always. Today's episode is Where Our Fates Were Born our eighth episode on 2008's Metal Gear Solid 4, Guns of the Patriots. Today we return to Shadow Moses, the location of this game's fourth act, and most famously the setting for 1998's inaugural Metal Gear Solid title. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes, we know who Merrill marries, we know the fate of Master Kazuhiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. Act 4 kicks off with a blast of nostalgia and some technical wizardry. Before it starts proper, we are transported back to the helipad sequence in Metal Gear Solid 1 as played in 1998. Just like in that game, the player has to get past the helipad and infiltrate the tank hangar using either the upper or lower vent entrances. Rations, shaft grenades, and stun grenades can all be found in this area. This sequence is perhaps the primary reason Metal Gear Solid 4 will always remain a PS3 exclusive. Mm -hmm. It initially achieved this trick by interfacing with the PlayStation 1 chip that exists in every PS3, primarily for backwards compatibility purposes. Instead of rebuilding MGS1 for the MGS4 release, Kojima Productions was able to essentially run this portion of the game off that PS1 chip. If you played a physical copy on the PS3 like I did, you will notice weird noises from the console as well as a resolution and aspect change and a quick blackout screen after it loads. As we described when covering the first two Metal Gear Solids, it was still the frontier days of the digital world and very little had been standardized in terms of format, processing, and storage back in 1998. This would all be mostly sorted a decade later. The PS1 chip would not be carried forward into the PS4 and beyond, and of course, this is another example of Kojima trying to use every aspect of the console and game experience in making his games. If you complete the segment, aka enter the base, you will be awarded the PS1 snake face camo, as well as keep the items you picked up in the helipad. If you die, and then choose exit instead of continue on the classic PS1 game over screen, you will not get these rewards. Either way, whenever you are done, Snake will snap out of his dream. Yeah, it's, I love always these, because uh, this is what happened a lot with the Xbox 360, when you would try and play original Xbox games, it would just start making that weird noise, because it was utilizing the, the original Xbox architecture inside of it. And it never, it, it really... <laughs> It, like I'm sad in, in some respect. I mean, the Xbox still handles the stuff well, but I, I'm on one hand, I'm sad that they they've gotten rid of this sort of backwards compatibility of just straight up not even emulating, like becoming the old console. But on the other hand, like it's it makes sense that they discontinued doing this because, like at a certain point, like the PS4 would have melted. 
Like the, the mm-hmm. PS4 is not uh like it already has I mean all the new ones have problems with heat, but like you get to these ones that are like today we've got the I mean these they're basically computers. Like these things would explode doing that stuff. Like playing an old laptop in like 2006, playing like World of Warcraft on it. I, not that I've done that and burned my thigh or anything. Yeah, but I don't know. I, I I love I love that kind of um. It's not an elegant solution to running old games. It's just like the most brute force obvious solution. And it's like yeah, we can just sacrifice our entire the infrastructure of our entire machine to destroy itself. That's what it sounded like when I was playing when I when I did this. It sounded like the PSP was eating itself. Which is a it's a great noise. You love hearing it. Honestly, it's a bit of a flashback in the sense that it make noises my original PS One yeah. or not my PS One did, but like my friend's PS One did, just playing games normally. Um, but yeah, it's just not super practical to keep carrying forward, especially as you know they keep trying to fill these you know console units with as much other stuff, you know, processing and storage mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. all that other stuff. But um, I think it is cool. Um, and I do kind of lament the fact that um, at least PlayStation, you know, is not fully backwards compatible to the first generation. I get it. But, you know, it kind of means, you know, I've been holding on to my PlayStation 2 copies mm-hmm. of MGS 2 and 3. And unless I go back and actually get, you know, a PS2 or that first generation of PS3, um, I'm probably not going to be able to uh, play those discs again. Which is fine. I can play the games, you know. I have a PS2 for that reason and a GameCube, but I need power supplies for both of them now. They're both shot. Yeah, and I guess while we're on the topic, uh, by the time this comes out, it'll be about a month out. But I think we just hit our 20-year anniversaries for both Metal Gear Solid 2, not both, uh, Xbox, GameCube. Um, So, like, all these things kind of, like, hit the zeitgeist, you know, Mm -hmm. almost 20 years ago to the day that we're at least recording this podcast, which is kind of wild to think about. In fact, I think we podcasted about it. <laughs> I don't know. I think I think the, the, the PS3 and Xbox 360 era is sort of the end of... It's sort of the last time that these companies had, like, problems fitting these things together. Like, they didn't use the space inside the console as efficiently as humanly possible. Now they do. Because, like, the 360 had it's, it had weird issues. That's where a lot of the Red Wings came from. It was just so much pressure was being put on it that it would just, like, break inside... But um, just thinking about the GameCube now, like the GameCube has all these weird compartments on the bottom of it that take up so much space and they're used for like nothing. <laughs> There's almost no use for them. Mm-hmm. The PS2, I guess, is more efficient. It's just so small that like even the original PS2 was not that big. And it was like very fragile, like fragilely built. And then the Xbox was just like, a, I, don't know, I don't know what they put in there. Like it seemed like 80% of it was empty space, which is a great way to design a console. Very efficient. <laughs> And I mean, I kind of miss that. Like, it's, you know, analog stuff, again, missing mm-hmm. missing out on, like, Betamax and stuff like, you know. Yeah. Like, these these formats that are not actually good, like, it's, they were never going to stick around because they were not efficient at all. But, I, you know, there's I miss that a little bit. There's, there's, some, there's some charm in that. Yeah, we talked a little bit about this, and I mentioned it a few minutes ago, is that, um, Back in, you know, 2001, you know, when these things were launching, there was no standard format. You know, not everyone was playing off DVDs or Blu-rays. In fact, Xbox went down the HD DVD route for a little while, if people remember that. There's, you know, pluses and minuses. You know, there's definitely a novelty factor that's lost, but it's probably just generally easier to get games on as many platforms as possible now since... Um, you know, you're not interfacing with a different sort of OS or, uh, well, different OS, but, you know, yeah. kind of the way games process is no longer that, um, you know, different console to console. It's much more similar now. 
I mean, you could tell it's more similar because aside from the Switch, they all use basically the same size. They're all the exact same format. You know, we don't have, again, aside from the Switch, we don't have weird cartridges anymore. We don't have like little tiny GameCube discs and weird Dreamcast stuff. Like, you know. Yeah. I'm really thinking of the Dreamcast when I think of all this stuff. I miss it. It was a great, it was a great console. Oh, yes. Returning to our story in 2014, we get shades of MGSV as we are deployed via chopper drop, though Snake has a less than graceful landing. His back seizes up and his psych meter drops. As this game goes on, Snake continues to wither more and more, barely holding himself together. I officially declare this the solid Snake flu game, echoing Michael Jordan's performance in Game 5 of the 97 Finals, and no, I will not interrogate the circumstances of that flu any further. Your infiltration of Shadow Moses begins just east of the base, and Snake will have to avoid a gecko to reach the helipad, at which point a familiar tune starts playing. It's the best is yet to come from MGS1's end credits. The nostalgia dopamine hits continue throughout this act, as in addition to this tune, you can trigger all sorts of audio cues from MGS1 if you explore certain parts of maps. Unlike the X memory flashbacks we've seen so far, these cues will trigger automatically if Snake is in the right area, and you'll rack up a bonus 1,000 Drebin points for each audio memory unlocked. Some of the cues include Snake saying a hind D and a surveillance camera, as well as Liquid posing as Miller and Snake being introduced to his MGS-1 team. In MGS-2, Ocelot remarked to Raiden that they were trapped in the memory of Shadow Moses. Here, we are outright wallowing in it. The visuals here are great too. Snowflakes can be seen hitting the camera, and the edges of the screen appear to be frosted over. Oh, and just overall, Shadow Moses looks great as rendered for the PS3. And don't miss the SOCOM pistol hidden underneath the truck, a phantom of the pistol Snake used in his infiltration nine years ago. Inside the tank hangar is a swarm of dwarf geckos, the balls with hands on their, uh, balls, more or less. (laughs) Scarabs or scouts also. And they roll all over the place seeking Snake. You can see a set of footprints, presumably Naomi and Vamps, leading both into and out of the tank hangar, which leads into the snowfield where you fought Vulcan Raven in the tank. Uh, More audio cues abound there. There are two sleeping gecko, uh, the Irving model, which you can slowly slink past without waking. I'll stop here to give some space for us to talk about these early maps. It was weird because by the time I played this, I'd watched this uh, probably two or three times, and I'd already played one maybe a year or so earlier so i kind of just like waltzed through it like i didn't have much trouble at all that was a little disappointing like i'm kind of mad that i did that to myself but i don't know yeah um so the one uh point i like to mention is that the dwarf gecko like if you're caught into an alert phase uh they can be really annoying because mm-hmm. they swarm um you can try to blast your way through them they're not like very you know strong they're pretty easy to destroy and they only have handguns um they also have a physical attack if they get close to you but um you can like bust out your grenade launcher or a machine gun and blow them all away and they will just keep coming um so it's you know do your best to avoid 
uh, them entirely. Mm. Um, I use, this is probably the place I use the drum can the most, um, cause it just kind of fits in with the rustic, uh, you know, iced over old fortress look. Um, but you know, uh, the way I kind of in- infiltrate the tank hanger is I use the upper vent and then you can yeah. kind of fall yep. onto a catwalk and then kind of work your way over the door in the back. Um, but like, if you try to like crawl over this entire map to try and find items, it, it can be challenging because the dwarf are, or the dwarf gecko are all over the place. When we get to the nuclear warhead storage facility, our progress is blocked by a locked gate. We need to head down to Otacon's old lab in the second basement to boot up the power, and honestly, I kind of love this segment. It's mostly just character work for Snake and Hal in the lab, reminiscing about their friendship that was forged here on the Fox Archipelago. This is the room where we first met, huh? Yep. It's not conjuring up any unpleasant memories, is it? <laughs> I was being attacked by Frank Yeager. Yeah, I remember. If you hadn't shown up when you did, uh, gives me the shivers just thinking about it. Snake, you saved my life. Nowadays, I tend to be cynical of nostalgia as a content strategy, or the way franchises easter egg older films into new stuff with little more than a ha-ha, see, it's the thing you know from the other thing. I know what that is. <laughs> but this feels a bit different, an earned victory lap as the sun is setting on Solid Snake's story, right about where the dawn took place. And it's not just relishing in the past. Hal and Dave do talk about how getting old isn't all that bad in a meta way that signals it's okay for Snake and Kojima's time to end. During this dude's rock scene, there is a passcode puzzle of sorts. Otacon had earlier asked you to write down the five-digit code of 48273. There are a couple other codes you can enter at this moment, such as Drebin's codec of 14893, which will get you 100,000 extra Drebin points, or codes to unlock new iPod songs. You can't fail this puzzle, really. Otacon will make a crack about your old age, but figure it out all for himself if you don't provide the proper code. On our way out of the lab, a gecko crashes through the roof, which you can try to sneak past or blow away, or use the Mark III to get over to the switchboard and turn on the electrified floor under the gecko's feet. In this and the next act, the Metal Gear Mark III is in full R2-D2 mode, interfacing with every computer and electrical panel in sight. Back on the ground floor, R2 gets to work on the main hangar door when another gecko arrives, this time taking the elevator. You have to buy time for Otacon to open it up, or defeat the gecko outright. Once done, Snake exits the warhead facility onto the snowfield where the twin comms towers stand, and the place Snake fought Sniper Wolf nine years ago. Quick aside, all this nine years ago stuff in Shadow Moses makes me think a lot about the Phantom Pain, and how it was nine years after the attack on Mother Base and Ground Zeroes. And since we are doing the whole nostalgia thing, seems like a good enough venue for our next uh, Beauty and the Beast boss battle, this time against Crying Wolf. Show me your tears. Let them flow. Cry. 
The beauty voice for Crying Wolf is Deborah Wilson-Skelton. And again, the beast voice is done by Fred Tatashore. The motion capture for Crying Wolf was done by Miko Rai. Probably the only time that the... Uh, I, mean, I guess Nika Futterman did one, but like Deborah Wilson has become more and more of a star in, that, in the last few years in, uh, of Mad TV fame, Deborah Wilson. Uh, okay. She's, she she's in, now, oh, she's, she's like not only a voice actress now, she's become like a mocap person. She's in uh, Fallen Order. She's, what's her, the other Jedi. And she's in Wolfenstein 2. And she's apparently in Halo Infinite. She's been in a lot of stuff. Oh, that's great. The last five, six years. Seems to have carved out a very good career for herself. Very good. Very good. Um, Wolf's backstory, like we said, is going to be overwrought. There's an African village that's in a war zone. Um, it was invaded by raiders, soldiers, mercenaries, what have you. Um, she was hiding with her brother who started to cry. So she covered his mouth to stop him from crying and ended up suffocating him. Um, and this led her to have hallucinations of a wolf walking alongside her. Um, and then she would end up killing other children in the village, but it, she thinks it was the wolf telling her to do it. Again, these backstories kind of suck. Um, or they're all basically the same thing or a riff on the same idea that was established with Vamp's backstory in mm -hmm. uh, Metal Gear Solid 2. Um, the one thing of note with uh, Crying Wolf is that, of course, Crying Wolf is an idiom for uh, yelling, you know, alerting danger when there is really no danger. And then, you know, when you actually need help, uh, no one comes. So uh, take that what you will. Um, but it's one of the only uh, bosses that actually has one of those double plays with their... Uh, mm -hmm combination names uh the associated pmc with crying wolf is werewolf which is a u.s based um what's it called pmc and of course the werewolf itself is another beauty and the beast concept uh you know which just echoes all the other beauty and the beast concepts in this game um, their slogan is evolution reinvented and perfecting the world through conquest of technology is their pitch <laughs> in one of those pregame commercials. Um, so their specialization is actually unmanned tech, um, like those like patrolling, uh, shadow Moses, which are basically geckos and dwarf geckos and wolf. Um, the logo is a wolf, uh, howling on a cliff. Uh, but probably more relevantly or something more worthy of discussion broadly, maybe we'll save it for our wrap-up episode, is that it's basically uh, Crying Wolf's uh, physical design is basically that Boston Dynamics dog um, mm -hmm. that you probably have seen dancing on your social media feed, and you're probably about a year or two away from seeing it kill some protesters at a Black Lives Matter movement. Um, those existed. Those existed then. So it's not like. Oh yeah, you're right. This isn't necessarily an example of Kojima like inventing the future. Those are those are those concepts definitely existed in the mid 2000s. So, yeah, man has always yearned to create robots to crush him. So, we'll talk about the boss fight a little bit. Uh, you know, the arena is as discussed the Comms Tower Field and also the Sniper Wolf uh, Battle Arena from MGS One. Um, there's a truck on the map. There's a trench uh, between the comm towers and the towers themselves are climbable. Um, and there's also a forest area here. So you have a little bit of verticality. Um, w one thing to note about the weather conditions is that if you don't take active cover, like say under the truck, um, your psych will drain throughout this boss battle due to the blizzard, mm -hmm. um, which I think is a neat little touch. It doesn't really come up in any other boss battles in this game. So I liked it. Um, and because of the wind whipping uh, throughout the boss battle, all guns are a little bit quieter and won't give away your location unless you're, you know, 
letting it rain with bullets or something like that. So um, definitely one of the best examples of them kind of using the full environmental, um, you know, and the sound design as part of the boss battle, which, you know, kind of stands out from some of the other ones, or they've all kind of played on different concepts. And that's kind of what this boss battle is doing. Um, Wolf's uh, weapons and tactics they use is primarily a rail gun, uh, the one that we saw Fortune wielding in Metal Gear Solid 2. Um, instead of carrying it and just using it like a machine gun in the way that uh, Fortune did, uh, Wolf kind of has it set up in her uh, wolf armor. And uh, what's it called? Uh, it kind of comes up and she uses it like a sniper w- rifle with her own version of like a solid eye, uh, it seems. Uh, and then Wolf has a physical attack. She can ram you and stomp on you. Um, her beast shell is impenetrable, which is unlike the others. And it's the least um, humanoid, uh, so to speak. It's actually in the shape of the wolf. It's not shaped like a person with features resembling the animal she's mimic after. Mm-hmm. So a little bit different than all the rest in that sense, too. Um, and then she can also smell you downwind, um, which is never really factored so much. But if you, um, you know, struggle w- against Wolf and end up calling Otacon, if she's really kicking your ass, he'll mention that she's able to sniff out where you are um, if you're downwind from her. So, uh, again, fun environmental uh, features in this battle. Uh, historically... Um, the way I've done this is, you know, night vision is usually your friend. Um, it doesn't work on the beast shell, so you'll have to wait for Wolf to actually pop out to use her uh, sniper railgun. Um, you can also track Wolf's footsteps across the map if that's something you, you know, would like to do, kind of make this a tracking and style battle. Um, you know, it is kind of the sniper battle of Metal Gear Solid 4. Mm-hmm. Every game kind of has it. Um, and then, you know, usually what I do is I use the Mosin Nagan since I usually play non-lethally. Um, this is a gun that by this point in the game, you can usually purchase with the Drebin points you've uh, accumulated. I mentioned in previous acts, you usually don't have the money to um, have this gun early on. Um, but usually but nearing the end of Act 4, you're able to afford it. And though it is not a silenced sniper rifle, again, the wind conditions allow it to be um, pretty effective and not give away your location when using it. Um, I will also say you can kind of uh, cheese this battle if you really just want to. Uh, you can just basically crawl under the truck and snipe from there. Yeah. <laughs> which, you know, sometimes if I'm just rushing through a playthrough, which I wasn't this time, um, what's it called? It's fairly easy. It takes a little bit longer because she's only in your uh, line of sight so often because there's a really big map and it only has a vantage point on, let's say, a quarter of it. Um, but you can just sit there and if you want to wait like 30 minutes, you can do it without taking much damage or doing much of anything really. And then the victory token, as all the bosses have in this game, is the railgun itself, uh, which will become a big part of a boss battle we have later in this act. But um, I think it's pretty cool. The railgun was a notable feature in MGS2. Um, I like that it's, uh, you know, a collectible in this game. Mm Mm-hmm. Beating Wolf unleashes another avalanche of nostalgia as a white wolf comes to carry away crying wolf's body. When you have control on this map again, all sorts of wolves will follow you around with heart logos, and you can unlock Sniper Wolf and Hindi battle memories if you explore the map. Um, the Hindi ruins can also be found uh, in the trees nearby. Remember, snake, Snake's a musher, so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, he is, so the dogs love him. They would love him, yeah. We now make our way into the lower levels of Shadow Moses and towards Rex's old hangar. But wait, don't we gotta change CDs first? Hold it, Snake. Time to change the disc. I know, I know, it's a pain. 
but you need to swap disc one for disc two. You see the disc labeled two? Nah, no. Huh? Oh, wait, we're on PlayStation 3. It's a Blu-ray disc, dual layered too. No need to swap. Damn it, Otacon, get a grip. <laughs> yeah, what an age we live in, huh, Snake? Wonder what they'll think of next. Snake works through a non-active blast furnace map and then lower basement levels towards Rex's hangar. These are some of the more complex stealth maps so far, and again, the dwarf gecko can be annoying to avoid. Patience and perfectly charting out your path here are how I do it, but you can just choose to blow everyone away or use a shaft grenade and just run through these maps. I actually had to remember this. I had to look back at it. There's a part in Revengeance that's kind of similar, like aesthetically. When I was looking this up, I was about to talk about that instead. And I was like, wait a minute. Because my, I was about to say my reaction was always to get behind them and assassinate with my sword. And I was like, hold on a second. That's not right. <laughs> but now uh, this, I remember being like, yeah, this is, I think, the, the spot where I was annoyed a little going through this game originally. Because like the dwarf gecko just like, they're not like, great enemies in this game, I don't think, personally. I enjoy... uh sneaking around the bigger geckos like those are mm. great sentries like they're they're the escalation of the standard metal gear sentry it's taller you know larger line of sight more overpowered um can you know vertically engage you as well as you know sprint across maps so i thought those were great but um the dwarf gecko they uh patrol in units or packs so there's are always four or five um, kind of rolling around and then you kind of have to pay attention which way they're going to point their lasers because they yeah. can you know kind kind of spin their lasers overall um like i said this is uh one of the few places i really use the drum can uh to hide snake in um because it is just like an industrial basement and just kind of fits in with um the overall aesthetic and you can avoid being found um that way but it is one of the trickier maps the first couple times um i had trouble working through this um and had to use the chaff grenade at some point or another um now i've kind of you know routed out a map that i've used over the last few years and kind of know my way but um I actually would have preferred more of this, to be honest, or just like more maps of this. Um, mm -hmm. I enjoy the nostalgia trip, but um, there's only really um, like this map, um, these two maps, and then the initial tank hangar map um, that are really kind of like stealth maps in this. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you're basically just fighting bosses or fighting Gecko. Yeah, it's not the most enjoyable. I don't think it's a gameplay segment section. It's not why people like it. Right, right, right. Snake makes his way to Rex's hangar, which, if you remember, was stored on a platform that was raised up to a higher level for deployment. We ride the platform up ourselves and find the ruins of Rex right where Snake left it nine years ago. But the railgun is gone. Sadly, we are too late, as Liquid beat them to it. And Vamp is here, ready to fight Snake with Naomi in tow. Naomi, for her part, is playing with Vamp's dick knife, aka the scout knife hanging at his crotch, and Vamp in return calls her queen just as he did fortune in Sons of Liberty. We did our vamp analysis back in our White Blood episode, but we can discuss his boss fight here. He calls her queen because vamp respects women. <laughs> Go off, queen. Um, and I think one of our listeners, I'll just mention here, uh, Ethan, uh, he mentioned something that should have been both obvious to us, or at least maybe it was so obvious that we didn't even think to mention it. But this whole White Blood thing, especially with vamp and Raiden, is so clearly come. <laughs> Um, yeah, cause you know, yeah, we talked about yeah. how they're penetrating each other and, um, all that shit and how, you know, Raiden's young, dumb and full of cum or something like that. So anyways, Imagine him um, saying that just to snake, <laughs> um, if Quentin Flynn wasn't a sex pest, I would cameo him to, uh, have him read those lines. 
him, him saying that over the inner over when he's like paging you in, in act two and snake being like what <laughs> full of cum um anyways cum, di- <laughs> cum digression aside which is something we all wanted to say on the, of our podcast um, the arena that you fight Vamp in is, of course, Rex's hangar, uh, which is a location where so much has happened. You know, everything happened so much. Um, this is a place where in the first game, uh, Liquid, uh, you fought Liquid Snake in Metal Gear. And on top of Metal Gear, it's also where he told you basically all your backstory about how you're Big Boss's clone, how you're his twin. Um, all that stuff kind of happened in this room, as well as Gray Fox's death uh, happened here, mm-hmm. um, which kind of plays into some of the other stuff we'll talk about in a minute so in a way this arena is kind of like an mgs graveyard of sorts um it's where a lot of people died or a lot of ideas and thoughts died um and it'll rack up more of a body count here in a minute uh the weapons and tactics that vamp uses are kind of similar to how he fought you in mgs2 um he has knife throwing techniques a couple ones where he'll you know get up on a high, um, like high ground, uh, to use an Obi-Wan phrase and, you know, throw knives at you. Um, he'll also kind of spin on the ground and have like a multi-directional knife attack. Kind of reminds me of Volgan's bullet attack from MGS three. Um, and then he will obviously come down, you know, chase you down and slash at you. Um, and, uh, he will come back to life. Um, I guess this is the big trick. The big thing with this vamp, uh, or this boss battle is, if you take Vamp's uh, health or his psych down to zero, he will eventually come back to life. The music will kind of stop, kind of like the end of the boss battle, but then it'll replenish, like I'd say, half halfway of the mm-hmm. health or psych bar, um, and then you'll have to just keep fighting him again until you figure out the quote-unquote trick, uh, which, of course, is the syringe that um, you were given uh, by Naomi back in Act 2. Um, you have to inject him. Uh, you have to lower his life to zero um, and then go up behind him, CQC him, and inject him with the syringe that will suppress his immortality nanomachines, for lack of a better term, um, and then that that basically ends the boss fight for um, what will happen. Um, his, you know, historically, I if I'm doing kind of a lethal playthrough, I will use the M4 custom that you get from you know Drebin in the first act. Um, I usually have the shotgun attachment on the bottom, so I'm kind of just pelting him with uh, assault rifle bullets, and then when I run low, I use the shotgun and then reload and all that. And non-lethally, um, basically use the shotgun V-ring. Um, before I shut up for a second and let Brian talk, um, I will say I do kind of like this boss fight, just in kind of a traditional way. Not that it's anything super great, but it's just like, here's a big-ass arena. Here's a guy who's chasing you down. Take out your guns and shoot him. Yeah. Um, very very straightforward. Kind of reminds me maybe of, say, like the fear or the pain, maybe. Um I, I don't really know what the best analog is. Maybe it's just the vamp fight from mm. MGS2. Um, but it just it's a very classic fight. There's no huge gimmick. And the boss isn't hiding from you, isn't flying off screen for lar- large portions. It's just, here you go, two grizzled veterans uh, just duking it out. Well, until you, there's one. you mentioned the Volgan fight. That's kind of what it's like, too. Just like, you're, here's this guy. You're fighting him. Like, it's not... I like the sniper wolf. Or the sniper, the, I, like the, I like the wolf fight. See, again, I did it. Yeah, um, yeah. I like that one in this. Like, I, at least it's like it looks. I like the weather, the inclement weather. I like the hide and seek nature, but it's obviously not as good as the end fight. It's not even as good as the quiet fight in, in V. So, like, it's mm-hmm. probably the worst of the sniper of the designated sniper fights. It's not as good yeah. as the sniper wolf fight originally. That 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 one's classic. But like, the vamp fight is really cool. Yeah, I, I like it. It's just that 
a boss fight. Yeah. That's the best way it's, to say it. Uh, yeah, and again, it does kind of have that gimmick with the syringe at the end, but for the most part, it's as straightforward as a boss fight gets, um, maybe other than the liquid fight you have at the end of the game. Uh, but like, yeah, it's just, you know, kind of here, take whatever guns you want and you just kind of go to town on vamp however you want. Um, and he's a pretty formidable foe and, uh, he has some heat because, you know, he's been around for a couple of games and he's done a lot of awful shit. So, um, he's got good heel cred, um, going for this boss. When vamp is injected with the suppressor nanomachines, he becomes mortal once again. But before snake can kill him, suicide gecko arrive. The suicide aspect, you know, geckos that self-detonate, is referring to the suicide bombing techniques used by Al-Qaeda in the War on Terror. They did not, you know, create, you know, suicide bombing, but they absolutely, you know, made it part of the zeitgeist and part of, you know, modern warfare stories going forward. Um, you know, it just is what it is. But before they can all detonate, white slashes across the screen herald the arrival of Raiden. Vamp leaps up onto Rex's hood as more Gecko arrive. Raiden joins Vamp atop Rex, and both agree to fight via Longknife, and they do some Yakuza-style posing before engaging. Meanwhile, in a baller-ass moment, IMO, Snake takes out the giant railgun one from Wolf and begins his assault on the Geckos. A fully charged blast will take them out instantly, and the suicide Geckos need to be prioritized as if one of them detonates. It's game over, man. Game over. The suicide gecko, it's just kind of, I don't know, it's just, I, I don't have much to say about it. It's just kind of a pattern. It's just there to pad time, I feel like. So, um, I kind of, I kind of like the fact that they actually give you something specifically to do with the railgun. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, I like the moment of him kind of just whipping it out. Um, and then the other thing they do here, which will be echoed in Act 5, is they do a split screen. So while you're fighting the gecko, which don't require that much attention, um, you just got to kind of pay attention to, um, what's it called, uh, any of the ones that are designated to blow up and make sure you're taking them out. Um, but this way you can look at a Vamp and Raiden fighting atop the... Yeah, I guess I like I do like that it's... I like the idea that you have to prioritize, but like you can't watch too much of the, of the Vamp Raiden fight or else you won't you won't notice Gecko coming up. It's a cool idea. I guess Ryan always had to be the one to take out Vamp. It just feels like at a certain point Vamp needs to go away. Like, mm -hmm. I wouldn't have been upset if he actually just died at the end of the snake fight, but, you know, it, that would be too much too much of a power fantasy being fulfilled, I guess. There you go. Snake, uh, the, the gradual the gradual shift for this game to uh, Raiden, again, because in 2... You were riding and Snake emasculated you, and now Raiden's the one who has to do all the heavy work where the old man sits aside. And so, you know, that's, I guess that's something. I don't know how much they really dig into that. Yeah, yeah. But that's still, I guess, an, an inversion there that's fun to think about. Mm -hmm. Snake holds off the gecko, and Raiden lands the killing stroke on Vamp, who falls off Rex. As he lies dying, Naomi gives a syringe to Otacon, or the Mark III, rather, to end Vamp's suffering. I like this moment in that though Hale wants revenge on Vamp, him killing Vamp here is not really vengeance, but mercy. 
How Snake and Otacon comport themselves at the end of their story stands in contrast with the events of MGSV, which is all about unleashing the lust for revenge into the system. In ending the Patriot system, Snake and Hal are doing so by rejecting the means on which it was built. Anyway, Vamp's death is followed quickly by a Naomi semi-suicide. She too injects herself with nanomachines, which counteract the ones which have kept her alive with terminal cancer. Her death scene is quite a bit overwrought, but her dialogue about not passing sins on to the next generation feels like a light bulb over Kojima's brain. Passing sins on to the next generation will dominate the big boss games of Peace Walker and V. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, and the score is pretty cool here too. After all that, more Gecko arrive, and it's time to escape. During the previous battles, Otacon used the Mark III to power up Rex, and Snake, Otacon, and Raiden hop on board. The three of them walking away from the corpses of Naomi and Vamp is in slow motion, a callback of sorts to the shot of them walking away from Emma's body at the end of the second act of Sons of Liberty. Snake, you're right. I haven't lost everything yet. I've still got a job to do. That's right. We need you. I'm done crying. I don't have any more tears to shed. We have to get out of here. Any ideas? Time's running short, so I'll explain as we go. Pay close attention. I'm listening. Alright, we can take a few moments to talk about the game's third vehicle set piece, this time aboard Rex, and you're making your way through... I don't know what that's called, the launch tube, (laughs) Um, a tunnel that leads to the uh, surface, to the port of Shadow Moses. Um, You're, um, what's it called? You're a snake. You're kind of piloting it with uh, Atacan riding shotgun a little bit. Raiden's kind of hanging um, outside the mouth of it. The, you know, front of it is kind of open um, and he'll uh, kind of depart halfway through to fight Gecko on his own to help you out a little bit. But um, so Rex, the weapons you are given are uh, a machine gun, which is kind of the default, uh, missiles, lasers, and then also some physical attacks you can kick um, with it. And uh, one thing to note about your weapons, aside from the kicks, is that um, your weapons can overheat, so you can't really spam any one weapon. You either have to change or you have to give yourself a break. I don't know. It, it's, it has a nice... It's always nice to have a nice set piece. I think I like it much more than the uh, the one in Act 2, mm-hmm. which is just kind of lame. Act 2 doesn't really do anything interesting. Yeah. Act 3, at least, even though it's, again, not my favorite, um, it at least tries to do some you know stuff with camera work and other yeah. stuff. Uh, but the the Drebin one is just kind of whatever. Let's reuse some maps to get out of here. Um, and I, I just think it's kind of generally fun. It just I think you know this game is like you know a nostalgia trip and all you know hearkening back to all the, the Metal Gears of old. So actually, riding Rex seems like an appropriate quote unquote fan service thing um, in a way that mostly makes sense within the story. Um, you know, take take it or leave it, I guess. Metal Gear Solid always makes so much sense to a certain degree. Um, And then it's all Gecko that you're fighting in this. Um, They generally, you know, walk across screen or come in through some scaffolding. You can destroy the scaffolding um, to take out, you know, bunches at a time, or you can just target them individually. It does really hammer home that there's just a lot of Gecko around. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like They have been mass produced in a way that I think I think in in Act One especially they seem more like specialized. Like there's only a certain amount of them. There seems to be basically an infinite number of gecko in the world. Mm-hmm. 
Very much so. Um, and maybe um, I'm just, you know, making shit up, maybe making connections that aren't there. But the first couple acts where we see Gecko, um, those PMCs are not specialized in unmanned tech. And maybe this is just... That's true. Yeah, no, that's true. Wolf, uh, the wolf, the werewolf uh, PMC just having more of it. Um, whereas the Mantis and the PFU armament did not have as much unmanned weapon. That, that, that makes sense. That makes sense because their commercials even like about mm-hmm. unmanned shit. So like, yeah, that, that makes sense. It's a good, it's a good pickup. And then I, I'll also add that um, you can't really equip any health items on there. You're basically on the Metal Gear Rex's life bar now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, what what you can equip in your items menu is the iPod. Um, so this is a great place to. Uh, you know, just throw on whatever music you, you know, have. Um, the best is yet to come is always a good hit. Um, one I'm going to call out is Calling to the Night, um, which is the end credit song from Metal Gear Solid Portable Ops, which is a iPod song here. Um, it's just, it's a very classic Metal Gear kind of ending song, but it's one that a lot of people don't hear because it was on Portable Ops on the PSP. So that's the one I like to throw on here. Our crew eventually makes its way to the docks at the surface, with Rex doing its own take on the Solid Snake landing. Yeah. <laughs> However, Raiden, who disembarked halfway, uh, you know, halfway during your escape through the tunnel, gets partially crushed by falling rocks right at the gate. He's pinned down, but Snake has no time to help him as something big is coming from under the water. It's Liquid in Metal Gear Ray. It's not over. Not yet. Liquid, Moses, where our fates were born, and where yours ends, Snake. Oh hell yeah! It's time for some Metal Gear on Metal Gear Violence. Uh, so let's talk about this Rex versus Ray battle, which takes place on the docks of Shadow Moses. Um, there's lots of infrastructure on this map. Um, water towers or you know cooling tanks um little sheds or warehouses whatever you want to call them i think this might be the only place not counting the tunnel that is new that yeah we didn't see in in mgs i think it is where you get infiltrated like where you get dropped off is you know not and then uh the tunnels underneath the blast furnace are actually um, new maps. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, cause, cause they call that out specifically as like, Oh, you've never been in this part before, but I think you're right. This is like, I don't know how far this is from the place where snake and, um, liquid, you know, crash their Jeeps. Yeah. I guess what I mean is this, this feels like the, the wholly new area, the other tunnel areas that feels like just an extension of like some of the, the bowels of Shadow, of the rest of Shadow Moses, but this just feels like a new area to me. Yeah. And I like to the extent that I don't know where it is, like where is it supposed to be exactly? And I know that there are people who have mapped that out, and it's not easy; it's easy to figure out. But I remember yeah. getting that feeling, like where where is this? Where like where where are we hanging out here? Yeah, it's it's a location uh, to your point that they couldn't rely on any other kind of aesthetic designs from anything else they've kind of built on yeah. this act so far. Whereas all the other places I mentioned that are new can be built off the existing outdoor maps we'd already seen or um, the indoor I- the interiorities we'd already seen. But you're absolutely right; this is new um, relatively to the rest of the stuff in this act. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that they call out is that the water line has been um, increasing across Shadow Moses and the fact that it's sinking more and more into the ocean, which is a nod to global warming. A nod. (laughs) Shout out to global warming. Keep doing your thing. (laughs) This one's for all my climate change out there. 
And then uh, the buildings that I mentioned can also be used to some extent for cover. Like I said, some are destroyable. Um, some are a little more steadfast. And um, you're kind of like strafing and shuffling around some of the buildings. Um, none of these Metal Gears, as we discussed in previous episodes, are like super agile until the gecko generation Um, they're all a little bit clunky um and that kind of comes through in this battle there which makes sense you wouldn't want to see rex like sliding and flying around over the place after the way it kind of lumbered around rex in particular yeah yeah ray's definitely more agile it has some level of not flight but you know it can get itself off the ground it can go underwater um and it's supposed to be more kaiju and less mechanical than rex is supposed to be more synthetic looking Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of course, as, as we haven't mentioned, this answered the long-running fan uh, debate of which Metal Gear would win. And the answer is the one that Snake's driving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Big shocker. And then like what, what you said about the more synthetic looking or... Um that's also we we haven't really talked about the the dwarf or the big gecko the Irving design, but the top half is Metal Gear Rex, and then the bottom half is essentially Metal Gear Ray. Yeah, um, yeah. The toes are a little bit different; those are kind of a unique design, but their legs are patterned after Ray's designs for Metal Gear Two. Metal Gear Solid Two. Sorry, I have to distinguish. Um, fighting uh, Ray, um, basically, I you use a combination of uh, missiles and machine gun to attack. Um, Ray, um, and Ray has, you know, kind of similar weapons. It has its own machine gun, its own missiles. It also has that water spout Ray that we saw in Metal Gear Solid 2. And it can dive in and out of water, um, you know, so it can like, you know, take cover and then emerge elsewhere on the map, or at least, you know, the part that's adjacent to the water line. And the, I think the best way or the easiest way to actually take on this boss fight is to use quote unquote CQC. Um, those uh, kicking attacks CQC. that I mentioned earlier. Um, if you like are able to land, I think two or three in a row, um, you get a, you know, quick time event. Uh, you get a triangle. Uh, prompt, um, which, you know, allows you to do some kind of special attack. Um, and that generally does the most damage. Uh, from my own personal experience, when you're playing on the ha- uh, harder difficulties on this game, like hard and extreme, um, the CQC is the way to go. You're not going to be able to take him out just with your machine gun. Yeah. On normal and easy, you can definitely just do it with the weapons. Uh, what's it called? Your long range weapons. It's not that hard. It kind of plays like uh like any number of like early two thousands like uh like that Hulk game kind of where it's just like hey you want to blow shit up you want to destroy all these buildings but it's like it plays like what you would want I think there was a Godzilla game but it plays like a Godzilla like it it very much hits the mark of what you're looking for for like a big dumb robot fight game not not so much like like a Mech Warrior that's more like a tactical game it's fun to me to see them just become another game studio for like twenty minutes and have a pretty good big robot fighting game <laughs> uh i'm going to kind of headcanon this as this is uh kojima productions uh their homage to uh the rampage arcade games from back in the day yeah yeah or maybe even that street fighter bonus level where you have to beat up the fucking car <laughs> um i'm just kidding that's not actually what i think but just made me think of like things where you just kind of destroy shit <laughs> for no real reason yeah so Rex defeats Ray, and Liquid stumbles out of his Metal Gear's cockpit. His dick pit. Kojima then fucks with us as it appears Liquid is going to die of Fox Die, just like he did nine years ago. Think again, he eventually says, and it's clear he's just, be- he's just fucking with Snake. He makes for the waterline, doing this goofy, taunting dance all the while. 
Snake, with the freshly dislocated shoulder, limps after him with the M4, but is unable to take him out. Um, before I continue, I know you love Ocelot dancing here. Uh, perhaps Patrick Zimmerman's finest moment in the game. It's, it's uh, great. It's incredibly funny. Yeah, it's so goofy, but somehow actually works, uh, which I always find to be, you know, entertaining. All of a sudden, a Mount Snakemore rises up out of the water. Yeah, Ocelot has built his own version of Arsenal gear called Outer Haven. And front and center is a Mount Rushmore of the four snakes, Big Boss, Solidus, Liquid, and Solid. Of note is that there is an actual former U.S. president among those faces. Mm-hmm. Aboard his Star Destroyer, Liquid looks to once and for all end Solid Snake, who has crumpled into a heap on the pier, unable to do much of anything as his body continues to fall apart. Liquid orders Outer Haven to ram the dock to crush his other half. That is, unless Raiden can stop it. A few moments earlier, we got to see Raiden 127 hours himself, cutting off one of his arms to free himself from the rubble pinning him down. And now, just as Arsenal is about to pulverize Snake, Raiden pulls a Jean Valjean and uses his back strength to hold back what has to be a 100,000-ton warship. Extremely anime, though also really kind of straining credulity here. Yeah, but at the same time, this this uh, this is the reason that we, uh, we end up getting Raiden throwing Metal Gear Ray in Revengeance, so I like mm-hmm. it personally. Liquid demands more power, and in response, Raiden sticks his sword through his own foot to hold him in place. He does end up getting crushed under the weight here, and as it happens, we get an audio memory of Jack and Rose's discussion of seeing King Kong from Metal Gear Solid 2. But before Liquid can press even forward, the U.S. warship Missouri, as commanded by Mei Ling, shows up and forces Liquid to run. Snake catches a glimpse of the carnage left behind. All he can see is Raiden's sword, pulsing with lightning, and nothing else left of his friend. Spoiler warning, Raiden will be okay. Yeah, it's funny they give him the death scene and it's like, he's fine, actually. Snake passes out, and we get his first-person view laying on the ground as a helicopter and Otacon come to his rescue. Just wanted to call out this specific shot, as it will be repeated right before the final showdown with Liquid at the end of the next act. And thus ends our return to Shadow Moses. That's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcastsoundsfrontiers at gmail.com and at podsandsfront on Twitter and Instagram. You can support Podcast Sans Frontieras and all my other projects at patreon.com slash manuclearbomb. 
I do want to reiterate, we have a stretch goal um, at 75 patrons. We will be covering the Matrix Resurrections on this very podcast. Mm. At 100 patrons, we will uh, do uh, a Kojima film club of sorts and have you guys select uh, some movies uh, for us to talk about and the Metal Gear Solid of it all. But anyways, I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I've been Brian. Yawning. Nano's made me what I am today, which is tired. Nano's made you yawn. Damn it. Shout out to our sound editor, Steve Sheets. Uh, Stephen Boyd, aka DJ Empirical, on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, remember, here's to you. Come.